received a pretty cool gift recently from my grandmother. This is one of, one of my great-grandfather's Bibles. And it is falling apart. So you have to quote Spurgeon on this, that Spurgeon said that a Bible that's falling apart probably belongs to somebody who's not. And that seems to be able to be said about my great-grandfather. Now, since it's mine, I guess that's true. Does it pass on? Is that how that works? Um, what's fascinating, and, and maybe some of your Bibles look like this too, besides the, you know, the binding worn and, and, and kind of running out of life, the pages yellowed along the um, outer part of the Bible here. Um, but you might also find in some of your Bibles uh, pages that contain little note cards, perhaps with memory verses or questions or old Sunday school lessons. My great-grandpa was a Sunday school teacher for a long time, and so a lot of his Sunday school notes you can find in the um, pages of Scripture here as well. I'm not one to write in my Bible. Uh, I think I said this just yesterday, that I feel like as soon as I write something down in my Bible, I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I ever said. And I just put it right next to God's Word. What, what in the world was I doing? My, grand, my great-grandfather wasn't like that, though. There's a lot of really excellent treasures in here. But one of the most exciting things for me that I found was here in the beginning, there's all these great, you know, Christian-y bookmarks in here. This is, this Bible was used in the 70s by my great-grandfather. And um, in the first few pages, he actually has some of his favorite hymns. And they're not just, you know, he didn't just write the lyrics in. And he certainly didn't go to the internet, you know, print off a page of them and stick them in his Bible. He tore these out of a hymnal and taped them into his Bible. That is not the act of somebody who just needs something to do on the weekends. This is, this is the act of somebody who says, I need these hymns in some way, almost as much as I need the rest of what is printed on these pages. Um, that these are things that were precious to him. And, you know, tell me the story of Jesus. I don't even know that one. Um, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, that's a very old but beautiful hymn, if you know that one. Um, but you, I can five. I just spent you know a long time already looking through here. There's letters that he's received, letters that he's written to other people in the family. Um, this has just become a great treasure for me in a way that you know this other Bible that I use every week to preach from is a treasure in a different way, right? All these things that Wesley White has added to his Bible, though, I don't imagine that as he put them in certain locations at the beginning and the end and all throughout that he was thinking you know what the bible really needs is just a couple more of these great stories or the bible's okay but wait until i put this hymn in the front i don't think that's what he was doing i think that he was taking his prized possession and taking all the tools all the things that were helpful to him outside of scripture and putting them in there so that when he went somewhere without his smartphone he never had one he would have immediate access to these great treasures. In some ways, what we're looking at today kind of calls to mind this behavior, this um, habit of many believers. Um, not that what we're doing here is, is looking at something that was added because of personal preference or because it really seemed meaningful to some people, but because what we find in the pages of Scripture is certainly the Word of God. And everything that has a faithful testimony to belong to what we call the canon of Scripture, that is the, um, the measuring of what, I have a definition here, let me actually just say it, the collection of inspired texts authoritatively. Um, that is what we have in Scripture. And when we come to this passage today, we're finding a passage that has a big question mark over it more than anything else. 
Because it's not immediately true that we should just cut this out. I mean, the questions that we're going to ask and the issues that arise have been issues for a very long time. And yet modern translations have retained these verses, verses 53 of chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 11. These have been kept. They are a treasured possession of the people of God, if nothing else, but may in fact also be the very words of God. Now, I mentioned that if you have the King James Version, you might not see a footnote. You might not even miss a beat as you read the end of chapter 7 and go to, uh, through into chapter 8. Um, part of well, the main reason, actually, that that is true is because the King James translates the Greek New Testament through what is called the Textus Receptus. There's going to be a lot of these Latin-y sounding words this morning. Um, But this one is particularly important because the King James is a treasured possession throughout church history as well. Um, It's a very prominent English translation that's still used today and is very, very faithful as well. But the Textus Receptus was uh, compiled by a guy named Erasmus. Um, And he was, this was in the 1500s, he was using a 12th century Greek, Greek compilation Um, So 12th century, uh, obviously quite a bit removed from the beginning of Christianity, the beginning of the New Testament. And so because of that, because of the text that he was using, there was really no question as to what to do with these passages. So when the King James was compiled, there's no footnote. So we're going to be thinking on a kind of scholastic and um, archaeological mind. stream of thought here, um, I want to remind us that if you're, if you're kind of thinking like, oh my goodness, this is going to be something that I really just don't care about, like you could either say, skip this passage or read it and pretend like it fits or doesn't fit, wouldn't make any difference to me. I would challenge you to think deeply about these things this morning. Because we're going to be talking in a different way than we usually do. Typically, we look at the content of the Word of God, but today we're talking about the nature of the Word of God. And if, if perhaps you, you come to this kind of a discussion and you say, oh, this is really exciting, I'm really interested in these kind of things, be sure not to let worship come to the wayside in this conversation. Now, now typically, a sermon is not a time where people raise their hands to ask questions. Um, it's not that that's unlawful or anything like that. It's just typically that's not how it works. If you were to raise your hand during a sermon, I'd probably have a... <laughs> Interesting look on my face, but then think about it and maybe call on you or maybe not, depending on where we are in the sermon. But today, if at any point something doesn't make sense or sounds outright wrong, please feel free to raise your hand and and make a comment or ask a question, something like that, that I probably won't have the answer to. But you can feel free to do so anyway. What we come to in this study is also a matter of our faithfulness to the Word of God. Because while we probably will never spend time translating Scripture to compile a translation, an English translation ourselves, this has been done and has been being done for generations. And what you say about Scripture depends greatly on the work of a lot of these guys who have translated it from the Greek and Hebrew languages and, and have found various texts that confirm or deny certain parts belong or don't belong in Scripture. So we should take this conversation, this sermon still, as a matter of faithful and our faithfulness to the Word of God. For a little bit of direction, we're going to take this in four parts. First of all, we're going to talk about inspiration and textual criticism. From there, we'll go to the history of this passage. We'll go to the message of this passage, and then we'll have a couple takeaways from the passage. Okay? So text criticism and inspiration, the history of the passage, 
the message of the passage, and then some takeaways for it. As we come to the matter of inspiration, let me just ask you, congregation, what is inspiration when we talk about the Word of God? How would you define it? Perhaps maybe you've never heard that word before. Thank you, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. God's thoughts brought through a human instrument, right? Yeah. In one sense, we talk about inspiration as being um, the process by which God takes up a human author as an author takes up a pencil and delivers his words to his people. Another way to say it would be that inspiration is the work of the Holy Spirit to transmit the word of God through his people to his people at a certain time and yet for all of time. It's kind of the lengthier definition, but let's look at some scripture that explains that. And I encourage you to put your eyes on these passages as well as we will come to John 8. You can put a bookmark there or keep your finger there for a moment. But first, let's consider 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And you may be familiar with this one after hearing the address, but um, you may also be familiar after hearing the first few words of it. 1 Peter 3, 16 and 17 Paul, an apostle, somebody who was commissioned by Christ himself to deliver the word of God, says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So what Paul gives to Timothy is a de description of the nature of scripture and the function of scripture. Because the nature by itself wouldn't be enough. Why has God given us his word? So that we could see what it looks like and, and just kind of know that that's it? No, it's so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, when we come to a passage like what we find in the end of John 7 and the beginning of John 8, we have to call into question, if this is scripture, then it's something that we believe will make us complete and will equip us for every good work in a way that other things cannot, in the way that a hymn that is taped to the beginning of your Bible cannot do. Secondly, let's look at 2 Peter 1.21. These are kind of the two classic passages. If you want to explain inspiration to somebody and how the, whole, the Holy Spirit created the Word of God, these are the two places to go to. They're the best places to go to explain it. 1 Timothy 3.16 and 17, 2 Peter 1.21. Peter, another apostle commissioned by Christ to deliver the word of Christ, says, For no prophecy, which in this case we're applying to scripture, it's the same thing. A prophecy is given by a prophet. A prophecy is the word of God given to God's people at a certain time and yet for all of time. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, as Bree said. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what's so fascinating about what Peter says here is that this is not simply, particularly as we look at the New Testament, and we see so many signs of human um, communication in here, especially as Paul or Peter are writing to the churches and talking about their own personal affection to them. God does not cancel out the human author in the process of giving his word to other humans. He works through them. Peter says that they're carried along by the Holy Spirit in that process. 
So we do not lose any human part of the word by saying that it is inspired or breathed out by the Holy Spirit. But it's that same mystery that we ask when we consider the fact that God, who is sovereign over salvation, who, who talks to a people who he says are dead in trespasses and sins and breathes life into them, those people are also called to repent, to choose and to follow Christ. There's a human responsibility and there is a divine sovereignty. Make sense? Inspiration. And now um, a couple other words here. Uh, canon. We're going to talk about canonize, the canonization of this passage and that being the collection of inspired texts, as we said earlier. For the New Testament, the sort of measuring sticker, the way we verify whether something belongs in the New Testament, comes down to three things. The first one being apostolic authority. Apostolic authority, the authority of the apostles. Okay, so not just any Christian who feels like it can say, this is the word of God. Okay, and that gets pretty tricky today because there's still a habit in many circles of Christianity to say things like, I have a word from the Lord for you. Or, God told me. Now, I don't want to deny at all that the Holy Spirit speaks to his people. That he speaks authoritatively, that he speaks clearly, that he speaks with comfort and truth. But when we say things like, the Lord told me, or I have a word from the Lord for you, we need to be really, really careful about that, don't we? Because to one sense, any Christian can say that, and after that sentence, say anything they like. So if the Holy Spirit is going to speak to and through us today, the best thing we can do is measure that according to what he has most definitely already said. Amen? So apostolic authority. The authority of the apostles, the apostles whom Jesus appointed, including Paul, even though Paul didn't see Jesus when he was alive on the earth. And there's two things to kind of put underneath this as well if you're taking notes. Apostolic authority can be either direct or indirect. And the perfect example of that is to go back to Peter. So the epistles of Peter, 1st and 2nd Peter, were written by Peter. Who wrote the Gospel of Mark? This is kind of a dumb question. Mark did, right? But Mark wasn't an apostle, at least not in the way that we understand Peter and the, the Twelve to be, or rather Paul and the Twelve to be. But what we have from history as we consider and as we study and research, we find that Peter took Mark as a companion. And really, Mark's gospel comes down to Peter's testimony. And so Peter kind of, you know, as being carried along by the Holy Spirit, kind of has Mark write all this down for him. That doesn't mean that Mark was completely out of the picture except for just copying down words, of course. But what we have here is, again, Peter as an apostle um, having direct apostolic authority in something like his epistles, but then having indirect authority in something like the Gospel of Mark. Now, a super fun thing that I'm not going to address at all today is the question of who wrote Hebrews. So we don't have an author for the beginning of Hebrews. And I'm not going to tell you who it was, because I, I don't know. And I didn't spend any time on Hebrews. But there are other issues like this that we need to consider. And I just plant that in your mind for further research. So canonizing, that is the collection of inspired texts, that process is verified by apostolic authority. Secondly, by orthodox theology. Orthodox, orthodox theology. Spelled as it sounds. And when we say orthodox theology, at least in our context, we're not talking about Eastern Orthodox. We're talking about orthodox as a word that means this is true Christian theology. So orthodox theology. So one of the easiest ways when we consider ancient texts that some people may say, hey, this should be in your New Testament. How about the Gospel of Thomas? 
Have you ever heard that? Especially around Easter and Christmas time, the History Channel and other TV stations like to put out like, what about the Gospel of Thomas? And, and do you really think we should believe the Bible is trustworthy? Those kind of questions come all the time. Well, one of the easiest ways that some of these texts get rooted out, besides some historical issues, is just the matter of theology. There's some kooky things in some of these other books that don't make it into the New Testament because they don't jive with the rest. It's orthodox theology. And then lastly, historical faithfulness. Historical faithfulness. You know, is this something that we see as historical or is this something that a guy wrote last week? That's kind of an exaggeration. But all those things have to work together. So if that's the way that we verify Scripture, what kind of materials are we actually looking at when we say here is or here is not the Word of God? Now, if we're going to consider all the resources that we have, we simply call them manuscripts. Okay, and in... In that word manuscripts, we're talking about things that were written from the first century, that is from the moment that Jesus ascended, all the way to 1,500 years later when the printing press was, was invented. Because at that point, obviously, transmission of information train, changed drastically, and then certainly even more as time went on to where we are today. In these manuscripts that we have for 1,500 years, the pr- first problem that we face is the fact that we don't have any of the originals. So if we say, okay, obviously the Bible you're holding today is not handwritten by the Apostle Peter. The Gospel of John was not handwritten by the Apostle John, right? We know that. But we might tend to think that, well, perhaps somewhere somebody has that behind glass with a big pretty light on it, and it's secure, and it's the official copy that John himself wrote. We don't have any of those. We do not have original manuscripts. What we have are a handful of different groups, the first one being the uncials, which is just a funny word that basically means they were all written in capital Greek letters. We have 322 of those in that category of New Testament passages. Secondly, then, we have the minuscules written in lowercase letters. Of the minuscules, that is, manuscripts of New Testament passages, we have 2,907. And you need to be wowing at these numbers. I'll tell you why in a second. The next group we have are the papyri, that written on papyrus, the paper that you know, we attribute to Egypt. We have 127 manuscripts of papyri. And then lastly, the uh, second largest group are the lectionaries, that is, copies of, from the uncials, minuscules, and papyri that were used for reading in church services. We count those as uh, manuscripts from the first 1,500 years of the church. Of lectionaries, we have 2,445. That means that our... The pool from which we consider the authenticity of Scripture includes 5,801 total manuscripts that we can point to to say, here is what we do have. Now, compare that to one thing. Julius Caesar wrote a commentary on the wars that he fought called the Gallic Wars. Now, again, if the uncials we had 322, minuscules, almost 3,000 of them, a total of nearly 6,000 copies of the New Testament, you look at something like Julius Caesar's commentary on his words, and you might imagine, we must have thousands of those. There are only 10. And they're used as authoritative historical documents, as they should be. But we only have 10 manuscripts of Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars written between 58 and 52 BC. That's 10 compared to 5,801. Somebody once said, 
in a theological, in a, in a debate over the nature of scripture, if you can believe in Julius Caesar, you can believe in the Bible. And if you can believe in the Bible, you can believe in Jesus, which is exactly what John wants us to do. So that is what we have. That is what we stand on as, as the evidence for, uh, historical evidence of God's word given to us. The process by which we consider those pieces of literature and anything else that might have a word to speak on the accuracy of scripture is textual criticism. Textual criticism is just the means of discovering the original text. Now, we don't have the original text, right? But we have a lot of copies from the original text that are very close in history to the original text. And one thing that you will hear from uh, non-believers, from atheists who might want to discredit the Bible, is that if you don't have the originals, then what is anything else worth? R.C. Sproul has a brilliant answer for you. He said that if you could imagine the very first yardstick being created authoritatively by Mr. Yard himself or whoever it was, an official yardstick that was the beginning measurement for all yardsticks to come. And if it was stuck in the ground, like, uh, what's that, Excalibur, you know, and kept and preserved perfectly, and then one day, thunder struck it, and it was gone immediately, burnt to a crisp. What would you do? Would you panic? Oh, my goodness. It's 2022, and we've lost the first yardstick. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to go into your office, and you're going to pick up the copy of the yardstick, and you're going to measure whatever you need to measure, right? Because it's the same thing, right? As far as the message, as far as the function of it. We want to say, again, that there was apostolic authority when it came to the delivering of God's word to God's people, but that apostolic authority was not rooted in the fact that John took a pen to a specific piece of paper, because if John's apostle Polycarp was standing behind him and saying, that's going to get lost. I just know John. He's not very responsible with these kind of things like the word of God. And he's copying exactly what John's saying. Does it have any less authority than that first copy? Of course not. So in much the same way, if you were to lose the first yardstick ever created, which certainly we have, it's, I don't, I don't know, maybe it is in a museum somewhere. But if it was completely lost, all hope would not be lost. And so it is with the scriptures. Textual criticism is the means of getting as close to that original yardstick as we possibly can. Now, again, another criticism is that variations in Scripture abound in the New Testament. There are more variants of New Testament manuscripts than any other ancient book. But again, we just compared the New Testament to Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, and we're talking about the difference between nearly 6,000 copies and 10 copies, manuscripts. So naturally, there's going to be variations. Of course there are. What are these variations? Are they earth-shattering, theologically diverse? And No, they're not. Most variations that you find in these Onsils, Minuscules, Papyri, and lectionaries are a matter of spelling errors. They're a matter of word order, which really doesn't matter to, in Greek as much as it matters to us. And, and other little things like that. Things that do not even touch the meaning of Scripture. Most variants amount to those kinds of things such that what we have is greater than 99% accuracy across all of these nearly 6,000 manuscripts. I know this is a lot of scholastic, heady stuff, but let that draw you to worship. God has not left you without historical proof that he has spoken to you. And anyone who would say the Bible is completely untrustworthy, the Bible would say is a fool. And history itself has even proved that. 
So the Bible that you read is very, very trustworthy. Again, if you believe Julius Caesar, you can believe the Bible. And if you can believe the Bible, you can believe Jesus. Remember John's purpose in John chapter 20, verse 21. All these things were written down so that you may what? I just said it, so just say it. Believe. Yeah. So that in hearing them, you might believe. And this is the purpose of all these 5,801 manuscripts being preserved. And, and in textual criticism, the study that's been going on for centuries now has looked at the scripture and said, hey, the, the changes that we see are largely pretty small. And then we come to John 7:53 through 8:11, And you say, okay, we're not talking about spelling errors here. We're talking about a completely unique self-contained story in the gospel of John that either belongs there or doesn't belong there. And I'm going to tell you off the bat, I don't know whether it does. I'm really not sure. The guys that I like to read throughout the week, even the, my, my tip, the guys that are sitting on my desk right now, they're commentaries at least, even in that group of five or six guys, there's one guy who says yes, another guy who says no. It's back and forth. A lot of that has to do historically. So J.C. Ryle, who I refer to often from the 1800s, he is dead set that John 7.53 through 8.11 belongs in Scripture. And he has reasons for it. And he was a smart guy. Don Carson, on the other hand, would say that there is absolutely no real reason to believe that this was original to John's text. So who do you side with? A smart guy who was alive now or a smart guy who was alive a couple hundred years ago? You have to decide for yourself. And as I just said, the fact that I don't know might be a little bit disturbing. I mean, I would love to have been able to say, hey guys, I spent all week on this and I know whether this does or doesn't belong here, but I don't. And I'm okay with that. And I hope you are too, and I hope especially after we consider the history of the passage as we will now, that you'll feel a little better about these footnotes that might disturb you. Look at John 7:53 through 8:11 with me. Verse 53, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, or sorry, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, from now on, sin no more. Do you love that passage? You should. I mean, it about brings tears to my eyes reading it every time. Consider what's going on here. This woman is dragged by these religious leaders to Jesus and basically say, kill her. Consider where she was drug out of as well. Because the testimony of these men was that 
this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Something that is done in secret, in private, between two people. Big question, where's the guy, right? This sounds like a setup. You don't typically catch people in the act of adultery. You find out later on, secondhand from stories, and somebody heard or said something, and, and oh, we're putting together that maybe this is going on. How is it that these teachers happened upon this very moment to find what they could see as a resource to condemn Jesus' teaching? It seems possible, maybe even likely, that this was set up. And that this woman had been in some way tricked. And that she alone is now standing before her accusers without the person with whom she ought to stand. Deuteronomy 22.22 says that if adultery is being committed, both parties should be stoned. But these leaders didn't even consider on bringing this man that was involved. They bring this woman to Jesus, whom they kind of, again, it seems like a setup. It seems like they knew something or set something up that they shouldn't have. And they're ready to catch Jesus and what he has to say. They want Jesus to say one of two things. A, don't stone her, have mercy on her. And then they can say, look, Jesus doesn't follow the law of Moses. You all, you people in John 7 earlier who was saying, this is the prophet, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. He doesn't even follow the law of Moses. How can you who look to the law of Moses for information about the Messiah say that this man who disregards it could possibly be him? That's one scenario. The second scenario they were also hopeful for was if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and kill her, then they could say, oh, Jesus, don't you know? We're under Roman authority. We don't have rights. John 18, we see this, that, that they had no rights to put anyone to death. This is a perfect scenario for them. So they thought. Jesus, of course, meets her with, with mercy, but with great wisdom. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And his words cut like a knife to the consciences of these men. Such men that were ready to just kill Jesus if they had a chance, heard his words and slowly had to walk away because they realized their guilt. Jesus isn't saying, he who has no sin among you at all, you who are perfectly sinless. He's talking in this context about men who are guilty of adultery as well. And these leaders recognized from the conscience in their hearts that they were guilty and had to leave. And then, of course, we have the only righteous one left. Who is it who could first throw a stone? It is only Jesus. And what does he decide to do? He who perfectly fulfills the law also completes and is greater than the law because he himself is God, decides to have mercy on her. When justice is cried out by these men and he ultimately agrees, he doesn't go soft on her. He says, okay, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. That's what the law says. So why is it that in the end he can say, go your way and sin no more? Because he has the cross in view. Anytime that Jesus has mercy on someone, he always has the cross in view. So should we, always. So that's kind of a snapshot of the message of this passage. And, and if that were the sermon today, and I said nothing about the footnote, I imagine maybe some of you might stop me at the door back there and say, so was that the word of the Lord? Do you know? I mean, what, you acted as though it was. Maybe many of us might just say, well, footnote might not be important. But if that was the sermon, is there anything in that that you would disagree with? Is there anything in that theologically, if we use our, our measuring sticks for whether this should be canonized, let's consider orthodox theology. Was there anything in there that was unorthodox? 
Was there anything in there historically inaccurate? Certainly we can't tell from reading our English Bibles, but a lot of the testimony to why this ought to be included, the people who believe it should be, is because historically there's evidence for that. Now, a historical argument against it would be that the evidence that we have doesn't show up until the 5th century. That's a long time after Jesus walked the earth for that text to suddenly appear. Anytime I come to the pulpit or anyone else comes to the pulpit, and uh, the tradition that we hold to at Crosspoint is we want to say, thus saith the Lord. Why do I every Sunday say, open your Bibles? This is the most important thing we're going to do today. Because God has spoken. And we want to be sure that when we say, this is what God's message is to you today, that it is in fact God's message to you. And that it's nothing else. And it's nothing less than that. And that's why the structure is a little bit different today. We want to say, thus saith the Lord, not thus we thinketh saith the Lord, right? And again, the difference in opinion is is vast. Even within our own theological camps, you find people who are more traditional, perhaps, in one sense. They might say that, you know, tradition says we ought to keep this in here. And then there are others who are very scholastic who say it shouldn't belong in here. Well, it's certainly not an argument of theology, is it? It's certainly not an argument of of whether this is actually true. The same Don Carson who said this really doesn't belong in the Gospel of John also said there's plenty of evidence to say that this thing actually happened, that this is a real story that wasn't made up. Augustine, who was one of the church fathers in the 300s, mentions the reason that it was absent could very well be due to the fact that um, early church might have looked at this and thought Jesus was somehow too soft on the issue of adultery. And that the church in in growing finally realized, oh no, this does belong in here, let's put it back. There's a lot to consider. Ultimately, it seems very unlikely that John wrote this, even though there are arguments for it. Timothy Miller, who wrote an excellent scholastic article you can find on the Gospel Coalition, said that there's no extant manuscript, that is existing manuscript, before the 5th century that contains this reading. Again, kind of difficult It's very likely that this text has been moved around in the process of copying. In fact, our Bibles today put it at 753 through 811, but other manuscripts would put it after John 736. And therefore, it would be an illustration of somebody coming to the fount of living waters to drink and have rivers of living waters flowing through them. This would be an example of that. And in other texts, of course, they put it after 744. Some texts put it at 2125 in the Gospel of John, and then some really wacky passages or manuscripts actually take this and put it in the Gospel of Luke at chapter 21, verse 38. So it's been moving around a lot in the last 2,000 years. There's a lot of question as to where this really fits. And in reading it and in considering the application, you say, boy, this sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And whether you think it does or doesn't sound like John, or maybe it sounds like Luke, it's kind of a matter of Legos and Megablocks. Do you know what Megablocks are? You know what Legos are. Megablocks are the cheap version of Legos. And you can use them together, kind of. They have the same sort of structure. They can interlock together. But if you're, des- you're desiring to build like a big medieval castle or something, you say, I'm going to mix all my Legos and my Megablocks together, it's not going to stand because megablocks just aren't built the same way that Legos are. Legos are, there's a reason they're so darn expensive. And in some ways, this John 7 and 8 passage kind of feels like a megablock put into um, the Legos in one sense. 
Historically, there are some issues, but historically, there's also some great similarities. One argument that's been made is that there are things that Jesus said that we don't actually see Jesus say in the gospel. Uh, If you go to, uh, for instance, Acts 20, verse 35, there Paul says that the words of Jesus were that it is more blessed to give than to receive. I don't know if you ever noticed, Jesus never says that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But Paul says that Jesus did say it. Now, if one of our measuring sticks for whether it should be in the canon is apostolic authority, it has apostolic authority. I mean, in one sense, everything that Paul writes in his epistles are, thus saith the Lord, Jesus said this thing, right? But there's other places here where it's like, well, I don't, I don't have that in the Gospels and the historical narrative of Jesus, but we do have them in the epistles. So some may see it, say it's just like that. We don't really know where to put it in the New Testament, but that it ought to be there. It's a saying of Jesus. There's a lot of sayings of Jesus, right? There's a lot of things that, G- that John even mentions in the end of his gospel that were said and done by Jesus that if we included them all, uh, your Bibles would be way too big to carry around on Sunday morning. Another matter here that we see in the text is timing. John never mentions the Mount of Olives except for right here. Uh, the emphasis on the Mount of Olives in the other gospels centers uh, very heavily around the last week of Jesus' life, the Passion Week before he goes to the cross. And this seems too early for the placement of that. Also, if you consider the narrative, particularly where we have it at 753, it seems to be a strange break. So if this is where the story was moving by itself and say that was the end, when you come to 812, you have again Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. And what we'll find next week in the weeks to follow, Lord willing, is that 812 seems to pick off right where 752 left off. Some people agree. Some people say the woman was coming to drink from the living waters, even though she was coerced and forced to come. But if we use our measuring sticks, historical faithfulness, orthodox theology, apostolic authority, it leaves this passage in question. Nothing in this passage contradicts the gospel. There's a lot of really good arguments for. There's a lot of really good arguments against. I'll give you kind of a summary of both of those. Uh, The best argument for, perhaps at least what I've found, is that if it were added, that is, if it wasn't canon and then suddenly somebody thought it should be, we have no idea why. To Augustine's point of them saying that perhaps early Christians said Jesus was being too easy on the issue of adultery, Augustine asked why would suddenly, well, uh, sorry, Augustine doesn't do this because he wasn't alive in the 5th century, but to Augustine's point, we might ask a good question. Why is it that monastic copyists, that monks who were living very aesthetically and who were very serious about sin would suddenly create a story that could be questioned for its ease, ease on sin. It doesn't really make any sense. There's ample reason to believe it historically, and so along those lines, that's, that's kind of one of the best arguments for One of the best arguments against then is that, again, the oldest manuscripts are our best measuring stick. They're closest to that first yardstick. Historicity and usefulness don't equal inspiration which is what a lot of other people say. Hey, this is a really useful passage. A lot of people really like it. A lot of people also really like that footprints in the sand bookmark, right? I bet you Wesley White has one in here somewhere. I I don't know where it is, but you know what it is, right? There were two two, uh, rows of footprints in the sand, and then they turned into one, and you're like, Jesus, why were there only one? Because I was walking next to you, and then I was carrying you. Aw. It's not the Bible, though, how much you like it, right? We can't just say that about anything and say it was so helpful to me. 
Stick it in your Bible, but don't make it a part of the Bible. So what should we do with it? You have to decide for yourself. I've already told you, I don't know that I really think this is part of Scripture, but I am very ready to be wrong, and I'm very excited for the day I get to ask Jesus face-to-face, was this sermon really a sermon, or was it a Bible study or a historical study? I think three things we can absolutely do with this. We can appreciate the gospel message. We can appreciate the contribution to church history because, again, very likely this story really happened. And lastly, we can thank the Lord for working through it to bring so many people to the fount of living waters, to tell them ultimately that in Christ people can be free of accusation and free of condemnation. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, forget about it. Moses wasn't very serious about that law on adultery. He says, go, let's sin no more. Don't stay in this life that you're living in. That's the message of this passage. In the passage, we see the sinful state of humanity. I love that this word caught, they caught this woman in adultery. They shouldn't have. This was not their job to do so. But it's where we all stand, is it not? We are not just sort of on the radar, and every time we sin, we make a blip on God's radar, and he's got to try to find us. We are caught in our sin before God. There is absolute transparency, however long, however much of it we'd like to share. It's true. This woman was caught in adultery. Uh, today, that would not be considered such a terrible thing. Um, it would just be considered creepy that they got, those guys caught her. Um, but beyond that, they would say, hey, it's no big deal. But this passage shows us that it is a big deal, that it really does mean something, and that it means something because of what God's word has already told us. This woman depicts everyone before God because we are caught in our sins. This passage also helps us understand the, the testing or the rather the um, treachery of the Pharisees. Uh, the leaders that had been striving to catch Jesus decide to catch someone else in sin so that they can perhaps catch Jesus. We see this in Matthew 22 as well. This is not an unusual thing to come across in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 21, we see a question brought to Jesus. Turn one more page. Matthew 22, 15 through 21. Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully and you don't care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went their way. Same kind of response as what we see in John 8, right? Leaders had no concern for the individual they had no concern for biblical justice. Luke eleven forty six. Jesus condemns them for that as well. You tie on other people's shoulders, burdens so heavy that you can't bear them, and you don't even try to on your own. You know, they're not allowed to put anyone to death, as John 18 shows us. And again, where's the guy? This is a mess of a challenge. They think they have Jesus in their grasp, and yet he, in perfect wisdom and in perfect mercy, reveals the truth. And that's something else. The character of Christ in this passage is so striking. Justice and mercy, perfectly balanced. So often we are only ever on one side or the other. You did wrong, and either I'm going to show you mercy because I really want to, or I'm going to show you justice because you really deserve it. Jesus is able to do both perfectly, simultaneously. Because whenever Jesus acts in mercy, he acts with the cross in view. 
because justice is satisfied at the cross and mercy is freely given because of the cross. This is a great passage. This is Christ's mission to anyone in the world who uh, would be caught in their sin and would be brought before him. That if they would come in humility and repentance and faith, that he would meet them with mercy and grace and the justice satisfied in his own life. Christ shows that justice and mercy in his character. He also fulfills and is greater than the law here. Let the one who has no sin be the first to throw the stone. He's basically putting the spotlight on himself there. He's the only one who has no sin and yet chooses to show mercy. He fulfills the law because he doesn't deny righteousness because he knows at the cross he will satisfy righteousness. He's greater than the law because he can fulfill it through love and mercy. We cannot. We are not the sinless, spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He alone can do that. As we've seen, again, this is the testimony of John the Baptist in the beginning of the Gospel of John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you see, the message of this passage is rich in comparison to the chapters around it, to the whole of the Gospel of John, to the whole of the New Testament. There's nothing that we find in this that is destructive to our faith whatsoever. But it is, at the very least, a helpful, mightily helpful, mightily encouraging illustration of the love of Christ for us. Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is what he had in view for the life of this woman and for the life of anyone else who would believe in him. Here's a couple of takeaways from the passage, just uh, three here. First of all, the effect of the gospel on the conscience. Don't underestimate that when you share the gospel with somebody. Intellect can be recruited by a sinful heart. Our hearts can say, I don't want to believe God. Let's find every piece of evidence we can to say that whatever he's spoken or whatever he's done is illegitimate. But the conscience, if it has a pulse, if it still is speaking what is right to the heart of the person, it will always side with the testimony of God. Romans 2.15, Paul tells us that our conscience either excuses us or accuses us. In this case, it accused these leaders and they had to go away with their tail between their legs because they had failed. Secondly, humanity is indeed caught in sin and in need of compassion. This is the universal state of all of us. The woman, the Pharisees of us, everyone that you'll meet. Thirdly, in Christ we have a perfect sanctuary. And we are called to it despite any true accusations that may come against us. The true accuser of our soul, the devil, the one who wants to undo all that Christ is doing, his greatest tactic is to remind you of how unworthy of Christ you truly are. And you are free, as this passage shows us, you are free to tell him, you're absolutely right, I am unworthy. But that does not change any one bit about his mercy, of his gracious character towards me. Because Jesus doesn't just say, neither do I condemn you, go. But he says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. This is what we need to call others to with the same kind of compassion. The story shows the sweetness of gospel to the gospel to those who are thirsty for it, who want to be free of accusation and of condemnation. If there was ever a point that Jesus could give up on us, could kick us out of the sanctuary, this story would have been a great place to express that. But those whom he makes his, he keeps in perfect peace. He is the perfect refuge for us. He is the one whose love never truly fails. It never gives up. It is never weakened by what we do say or think. We can grieve the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. That's true. But if we are truly Christ, we will know it because that sin will end at some point and it will be sooner rather than later. 
and that our humility, our conscience will speak to us and say, you need to get right with God. You need to go before him and confess your need for him and he will welcome you and he will send you on your way along with him to be free from the life that we've left behind. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you this morning for this story. And whatever we're going to do with it, some of us maybe in our hearts are saying, hey, I'm, I'm convinced this doesn't belong here. And some of us may be saying, I'm convinced it absolutely belongs here. We know that the message that it's telling us certainly belongs in our Bibles. And it is a healthy thing for us to consider this passage and a handful others like it in like manner. To not simply glaze over it and decide on our own, our own judgment of right or wrong, but rather to deeply consider what you have said and what you have done. We thank you, Lord, that like this woman who was caught in her sin, we ourselves have been caught in it as well. But your love has abounded. Your grace has abounded where sin seemed to be too powerful, seemed to be too much. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. We thank you that that's what we have in Christ. We praise your name for it in Jesus' name. Amen.